Chapter 16, Part 1 From the Mountains of California This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE MOUNTAINS OF CALIFORNIA by John Muir CHAPTER Sixteen, PART One. When California was wild, it was one sweet bee-garden throughout its entire length, north and south, and all the way across the snowy Sierra to the ocean. Wherever a bee might fly within the bounds of this virgin wilderness, through the redwood forests, along the banks of the rivers, along the bluffs and headlands fronting the sea, over valley and plain, and deep leafy glen, or far up the piney slopes of the mountains, throughout every belt and section of climate up to the timberline, bee-flowers bloomed in lavish abundance. Here they grew more or less apart in special sheets and patches of no great size, there in broad flowing folds hundreds of miles in length, zones of polony forests, zones of flowery chaparral, stream tangles of rubus and wild rose, sheets of golden composite, beds of violets, beds of mint, beds of brianthus and clover, and so on, certain species blooming somewhere all the year round. But of late years, plows and sheep have made sad havoc in these glorious pastures, destroying tens of thousands of the flowery acres like a fire, and banishing many species of the best honey-plants to rocky cliffs and fence-corners, while, on the other hand, cultivation thus far has given no adequate compensation, at least in kind. Only acres of alfalfa for miles of the richest wild pasture, ornamental roses and honeysuckles around cottage doors for cascades of wild roses in the dells, and small square orchards and orange groves for broad mountain belts of chaparral. The great central plain of California, during the months of March, April, and May, was one smooth, continuous bed of honey-bloom, so marvelously rich, that, in walking from one end of it to the other, a distance of more than four hundred miles, your foot would press about a hundred flowers at every step. Mints, gilias, nemophilus, castellias, and innumerable compostae were so crowded together that, had ninety-nine per cent of them been taken away, the plain would still have seemed to any but Californians extravagantly flowery. The radiant, honey-full corollas, touching and overlapping, and rising above one another, glowed in the living light like a sunset sky. One sheet of purple and gold, with the bright Sacramento pouring through the midst of it from the north, the San Joaquin from the south, and their main tributaries sweeping in at right angles from the mountains, dividing the plain into sections fringed with trees. Along the rivers there is a strip of bottom land, countersunk between the general level, and wider towards the foothills, where magnificent oaks from three to eight feet in diameter cast grateful masses of shade over the open prairie-like levels, and close along the water's edge 
there was a fine jungle of tropical luxuriance, composed of wild rose and bramble bushes, and a great variety of climbing vines, wreathing and interlacing the branches and trunks of willows and alders, and swinging across from summit to summit in heavy festoons. Here the wild bees reveled in fresh bloom long after the flowers of the drier plain had withered and gone to seed. And in midsummer, when the blackberries were ripe, the Indians came from the mountains to feast. Men, women, and babies, in long, noisy trains, often joined by the farmers of the neighborhood, who gathered this wild fruit with commendable appreciation of its superior flavor, while their home orchards were full of ripe peaches, apricots, nectarines, and figs, and their vineyards were laden with grapes. But, though these luxuriant, shaggy river-beds were thus distinct from the smooth, treeless plain, they made no heavy dividing lines in general views. The whole appeared as one continuous sheet of bloom, bounded only by the mountains. When I first saw this central garden, the most extensive and regular of all the bee-pastures of the state, it seemed all one sheet of plant gold, hazy and vanishing in the distance, distinct as a new map along the foothills at my feet. Descending the eastern slopes of the coast range through beds of gilius and lupines, and around many a breezy hillock and bush-crowned headland, I at length waded out into the midst of it. All the ground was covered, not with grass and green leaves, but with radiant corollas, about ankle-deep next the foothills, knee-deep or more, five or six miles out. Here were Bahia, Madia, Madaria, Borealia, Chrysopsis, Corethrogyne, Grindelia, etc., growing in close social congregations of various shades of yellow, blending finely with the purples of Clarkia, Orthrocarpus, and Oenthera, whose delicate petals were drinking the vital sunbeams without giving back any sparkling glow. Because so long a period of extreme drought succeeds the rainy season, most of the vegetation is composed of annuals, which spring up simultaneously, and bloom together at about the same height above the ground, the general surface being but slightly ruffled by the taller phacelias, penstemons, and groups of salvia carduacea, the king of the mints. Sauntering in any direction, hundreds of these happy sun-plants brushed against my feet at every step, and closed over them, as if I were waiting in liquid gold. The air was sweet with fragrance, the larks sang their blessed songs, rising on the wing as I advanced, then sinking out of sight in the polony sod, while myriads of wild bees stirred the lower air with their monotonous hum, monotonous yet forever fresh and sweet as every day's sunshine. Hares and spermophiles showed themselves in considerable numbers in shallow places, and small bands of antelopes were almost constantly in sight, 
gazing curiously from some slight elevation, and then bounding away with the unrivaled grace of motion. Yet I could discover no crushed flowers to mark their track, nor, indeed, any destructive action of any wild foot or tooth whatever. The great yellow days circled by uncounted, while I drifted toward the north, observing the countless forms of life thronging about me, lying down almost anywhere on the approach of night. And what glorious botanical beds I had! Oftentimes on awaking, I would find several new species leaning over me, and looking me full in the face, so that my studies would begin before rising. About the first of May I turned eastward, crossing the San Joaquin River, between the mouths of the Tuolumne and Merced, and by the time I had reached the Sierra foothills, most of the vegetation had gone to seed, and become as dry as hay. All the seasons of the Great Plain are warm or temperate, and bee-flowers are never wholly wanting. But the grand springtime, the annual resurrection, is governed by the rains, which usually set in about the middle of November, or the beginning of December. Then the seeds, that for six months have lain on the ground dry and fresh, as if they had been gathered into barns, at once unfold their treasured life. The general brown and purple of the ground and the dead vegetation of the preceding year give place to the green of mosses and liverworts and myriads of young leaves. Then one species after another comes into flower, gradually overspreading the green with yellow and purple, which lasts until May. The rainy season is by no means a gloomy, soggy period of constant cloudiness and rain. Perhaps nowhere else in North America, perhaps in the world, are the months of December, January, February, and March so full of bland, plant-building sunshine. Referring to my notes of the winter and spring of 1868 through 69, every day of which I spent out of doors, on that section of the plain lying between the Tuolumne and Merced rivers, I find that the first rain of the season fell on December 18th. January had only six rainy days, that is, days on which rain fell, February 3, March 5, April 3, and May 3, completing the so-called rainy season, which was about an average one. The ordinary rainstorm of this region is seldom very cold or violent. The winds, which in settled weather come from the northeast, veer round into the opposite direction. The sky fills gradually and evenly with one general cloud, from which the rain falls steadily, often for days in succession, at the temperature of about 45 degrees or 50 degrees. More than 75% of all the rain of this season came from the northwest, down the coast over southeastern Alaska, British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon, though the local winds of these circular storms blow from the southeast. One magnificent local storm from the northwest fell on March 21st. A massive, 
round-browed cloud came swelling and thundering over the flowery plain in most imposing majesty, its bossy front burning white and purple in the full blaze of the sun, while warm rain poured from its ample fountains like a cataract, beating down flowers and bees, and flooding the dry watercourses as suddenly as those of Nevada are flooded by the so-called cloudbursts. But in less than half an hour not a trace of the heavy, mountain-like cloud structure was left in the sky, and the bees were on the wing, as if nothing more gratefully refreshing could have been sent them. By the end of January, four species of plants were in flower, and five or six mosses had already adjusted their hoods, and were in the prime of life. But the flowers were not sufficiently numerous as yet to affect greatly the general green of the young leaves. Violets made their appearance in the first week of February, and toward the end of this month the warmer portions of the plain were already golden with myriads of the flowers of rayed composite. This was the full springtime. The sunshine grew warmer and richer. New plants bloomed every day. The air became more tuneful with humming wings, and sweeter with the fragrance of the opening flowers. Ants and ground squirrels were getting ready for their summer work, rubbing their benumbed limbs, and sunning themselves on the husk piles before their doors, and spiders were busy mending their old webs, or weaving new ones. In March the vegetation was more than doubled in depth and color. Claytonia, Calandrinia, a large white gilia, and two nemophilus were in bloom, together with a host of yellow composite, tall enough now to bend in the wind and show wavering ripples of shade. In April plant life as a whole reached its greatest height, and the plain, over all its varied surface, was mantled with a close, furred plush of purple and golden corollas. By the end of this month, most of the species had ripened their seeds, but, undecayed, still seemed to be in bloom from the numerous corolla-like involucres and whirls of chaffy scales on the composite. In May, the bees found in flower only a few deep-set lilaceous plants and aragonums. June, July, August, and September is the season of rest and sleep, a winter of dry heat, followed in October by a second outburst of bloom at the very driest time of the year. Then, after the shrunken mass of leaves and stalks of the dead vegetation crinkle and turn to dust beneath the foot, as if it had been baked in an oven, Heronzonia virgata, a slender, unobtrusive little plant, from six inches to three feet high, suddenly makes its appearance in patches miles in extent, like a resurrection of the bloom of April. I have counted upward of three thousand flowers, five-eighths of an inch in diameter, on a single plant. Both its leaves and stems are so slender as to be nearly invisible at a distance of a few yards, amid so showy a multitude of flowers. The ray and disc flowers are both yellow, 
the stamens purple, and the texture of the rays is rich and velvety, like the petals of garden pansies. The prevailing wind turns all the heads round to the southeast, so that, in facing northwestward, we have the flowers looking us in the face. In my estimation, this little plant, the last born of the brilliant host of compositae that glorify the plain, is the most interesting of all. It remains in flower until November, uniting with two or three species of wiry aragonums, which continue the floral chain around December to the spring flowers of January. Thus, although the main bloom and honey season is only about three months long, the floral circle, however thin around some of the hot, rainless months, is never completely broken. How long the various species of wild bees have lived in this honey garden, nobody knows. Probably ever since the main body of the present flora gained possession of the land, toward the close of the glacial period. The first brown honey-bees brought to California are said to have arrived in San Francisco in March 1853. A beekeeper by the name of Shelton purchased a lot, consisting of twelve swarms, from someone at Aspinwall who had brought them from New York. When landed at San Francisco, all the hives contained live bees, but they finally dwindled to one hive, which was taken to San Jose. The little immigrants flourished and multiplied in the bountiful pastures of the Santa Clara Valley, sending off three swarms the first season. The owner was killed shortly afterward, and, in settling up his estate, two of the swarms were sold at auction for a hundred and five and one hundred and ten dollars, respectively. Other importations were made, from time to time, by way of the isthmus, and, though great pains were taken to ensure success, about one-half usually died on the way. Four swarms were brought safely across the plains in 1859, the hives being placed in the rear end of a wagon, which was stopped in the afternoon to allow the bees to fly and feed in the floweriest places that were within reach until dark, when the hives were closed. In 1855, two years after the time of the first arrivals from New York, a single swarm was brought over from San Jose, and let fly in the great central plain. Bee culture, however, has never gained much attention here, notwithstanding the extraordinary abundance of honey bloom, and the high price of honey during the early years. A few hives are found here and there among settlers, who chance to have learned something about the business before coming to the state. But sheep, cattle, grain, and fruit raising are the chief industries, as they require less skill and care, while the profits thus far have been greater. In 1856 honey sold here at from one and a half to two dollars a pound. Twelve years later the price had fallen to twelve and a half cents. In 1868, I sat down to dinner with a band of ravenous sheep-shearers at a ranch on the San Joaquin, where fifteen or twenty hives were kept, and our host advised us not to spare the large pan of honey he had placed on the table, as it was the cheapest article he had to offer. In all my walks, however, 
I have never come upon a regular bee ranch in the Central Valley like those so common and so skillfully managed in the southern counties of the state. The few pounds of honey and wax produced are consumed at home, and are scarcely taken into account among the coarser products of the farm. The swarms that escape from their careless owners have a weary, perplexing time of it in seeking suitable homes. Most of them find their ways to the foothills of the mountains, or to the trees that line the banks of the rivers, where some hollow log or trunk may be found. A friend of mine, while out hunting on the San Joaquin, came upon an old coon trap, hidden among some tall grass near the edge of the river, upon which he sat down to rest. Shortly afterward his attention was attracted to a crowd of angry bees that were flying excitedly about his head, when he discovered that he was sitting upon their hive, which was found to contain more than two hundred pounds of honey. Out in the broad, swampy delta of the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers, the little wanderers have been known to build their combs in a bunch of rushes, or stiff, wiry grass, only slightly protected from the weather, and in danger every spring of being carried away by floods. They have the advantage, however, of a vast extent of fresh pasture, accessible only to themselves. The present condition of the Grand Central Garden is very different from that we have sketched. About twenty years ago, when the gold placers had been pretty thoroughly exhausted, the attention of fortune-seekers, not home-seekers, was in great part turned away from the mines to the fertile plains, and many began experiments in a kind of restless, wild agriculture. A load of lumber would be hauled to some spot on the free wilderness, where water could be easily found, and a rude box cabin built. Then a gang-plow was procured, and a dozen mustang ponies worth ten or fifteen dollars apiece, and with these hundreds of acres were stirred as easily as if the land had been under cultivation for years, tough perennial roots being almost wholly absent. Thus a ranch was established, and from these bare wooden huts, as centers of desolation, the wild flora vanished in ever-widening circles. But the arch-destroyers are the shepherds, with their flocks of hooved locusts, sweeping over the ground like a fire, and trampling down every rod that escapes the plough as completely as if the whole plain were a cottage-garden plot without a fence. But, notwithstanding these destroyers, a thousand swarms of bees may be pastured here for every one now gathering honey. The greater portion is still covered every season with a repressed growth of bee-flowers, for most of the species are annuals, and many of them are not relished by sheep or cattle, while the rapidity of their growth enables them to develop and mature their seeds before any foot has time to crush them. The ground is therefore kept sweet, and the race is perpetuated, though only as a suggestive shadow of the magnificence of its wildness. The time will undoubtedly come 
when the entire area of this noble valley will be tilled like a garden, when the fertilizing waters of the mountains, now flowing to the sea, will be distributed to every acre, giving rise to prosperous towns, wealth, arts, etc. Then, I suppose, there will be left few, even among botanists, to deplore the vanished primeval flora. In the meantime, the pure waste going on, the wanton destruction of the innocents, is a sad sight to see, and the sun may well be pitied in being compelled to look on. The bee-pastures of the coast ranges last longer, and are more varied than those of the Great Plain, on account of differences of soil and climate, moisture and shade, etc. Some of the mountains are upward of four thousand feet in height, and small streams, springs, oozy bogs, etc., occur in great abundance and variety in the wooded areas, while open parks flooded with sunshine, and hill-girt valleys lying at different elevations, each with its own peculiar climate and exposure, possess the required conditions for the development of species and families of plants widely varied. Next the plain there is, first, a series of smooth hills, planted with a rich and showy vegetation that differs but little from that of the plain itself, as if the edge of the plain had been lifted and bent into flowing folds, with all its flowers in place, only toned down a little as to their luxuriance, and a few new species introduced, such as the hill lupines, mints, and gilius. The colors show finely when thus held to view on the slopes. Patches of red, purple, blue, yellow, and white, blending around the edges, the whole appearing at a little distance, like a map colored in sections. Above this lies the park and chaparral region, with oaks, mostly evergreen, planted wide apart, and blooming shrubs from three to ten feet high. Monsanita and Cyanothus of several species, mixed with Romnus, Circes, Picaringia, Cherry, Abalanchir, and Adenostoma, in shaggy interlocking thickets, and many species of Hosakia, Clover, Monardalia, Castilea, etc., in the openings. The main ranges send out spurs somewhat parallel to their axes, enclosing level valleys, many of them quite extensive, and containing a great profusion of sun-loving bee-flowers in their wild state. But these are, in great part, already lost to the bees by cultivation. Nearer the coast are the giant forests of the redwoods, extending from near the Oregon line to Santa Cruz. Beneath the cool deep shade of these majestic trees, the ground is occupied by ferns, chiefly woodwardia and aspidiums, with only a few flowering plants, oxalis, trientalis, erythronium, fritillaria, smilax, and other shade-lovers. But all along the redwood belt there are sunny openings on hill-slopes looking to the south, where the giant trees stand back and give the ground to the small sunflowers, and 
the bees. Around the lofty redwood walls of these little bee acres there is usually a fringe of chestnut oak, laurel, and madroño, the last of which is a surpassingly beautiful tree, and a great favorite with the bees. The trunks of the largest specimens are seven or eight feet thick, and about fifty feet high, the bark red and chocolate-colored, the leaves plain, large, and glossy, like those of magnolia grandiflora, while the flowers are yellowish-white and urn-shaped in well-proportioned panicles, from five to ten inches long. When in full bloom, a single tree seems to be visited at times by a whole hive of bees at once, and the deep hum of such a multitude makes the listener guess that more than the ordinary work of honey-winning must be going on. How perfectly enchanting and care-obliterating are these withdrawn gardens of the woods, long vistas opening to the sea, sunshine sifting and pouring upon the flowery ground in a tremulous, shifting mosaic, as the light ways in the leafy wall open and close with the swaying breeze, shining leaves and flowers, birds and bees, mingling together in springtime harmony, and soothing fragrance exhaling from a thousand, thousand fountains. In these balmy, dissolving days, when the deep heartbeats of nature are felt, thrilling rocks and trees, and everything alike, common business and friends are happily forgotten, and even the natural honey-work of bees, and the care of birds for their young, and mothers for their children, seem slightly out of place. To the northward in Humboldt and the adjacent counties, whole hillsides are covered with rhododendron, making a glorious melody of bee-bloom in the spring, and the western azalea, hardly less flowery, grows in massy thickets three to eight feet high around the edges of groves and woods as far south as San Luis Obispo, usually accompanied by manzanita, while the valleys, with their varying moisture and shade, yield a rich variety of smaller honey-flowers, such as mentha, lycopus, micromeria, audibertia, trichostema, and other mints, with vaccinium, wild strawberry, geranium, calais, and goldenrod, and in the cool glens along the stream-banks, where the shade of trees is not too deep, spiraria, dogwood, heteromelis, and calicanthus, and many species of rubus form interlacing tangles, some portion of which continues in bloom for months. Though the coast region was first to be invaded and settled by white men, it has suffered less from a bee point of view than either of the other main divisions, chiefly, no doubt, because of the unevenness of the surface, and because it is owned and protected instead of lying exposed to the flocks of the wandering sheepmen. These remarks apply more particularly to the north half of the coast. Farther south there is less moisture, less forest shade, 
and the honey flora is less varied. The Sierra region is the largest of the three main divisions of the bee lands of the state, and the most regularly varied in its subdivisions, owing to their gradual rise from the level of the central plain to the alpine summits. The foothill region is about as dry and sunful from the end of May until the settling in of the winter rains as the plain. There are no shady forests, no damp glens, at all like those lying at the same elevations in the coast mountains. The social composite of the plains, with a few species, form the bulk of the herbaceous portion of the vegetation up to a height of fifteen hundred feet or more, shaded lightly here and there with oaks and sabine pines, and interrupted by patches of cyanothus and buckeye. Above this, and just below the forest region, there is a dark, heath-like belt of chaparral, composed almost exclusively of adenostoma fasciculata, a bush belonging to the rose family, from five to eight feet high, with small round leaves and fascicles, and bearing a multitude of small white flowers and panicles on the ends of the upper branches. Where it occurs, at all, it usually covers all the ground with a close, impenetrable growth, scarcely broken for miles. Up through the forest region to a height of about 9,000 feet above sea level, there are ragged patches of manzanita and five or six species of cyanothus, called deerbrush or California lilac. These are the most important of all the honey-bearing bushes of the Sierra. Chamabatia foliolosa, a little shrub about a foot high, with flowers like the strawberry, makes handsome carpets beneath the pines, and seems to be a favorite with the bees, while pines themselves furnish unlimited quantities of pollen and honey-dew. The product of a single tree, ripening its pollen at the right time of year, would be sufficient for the wants of a whole hive. Along the streams there is a rich growth of lilies, larkspurs, pedicularis, castellius, and clover. The alpine region contains the flowery glacier meadows, and countless small gardens in all sorts of places, full of potentilia of several species, spragalia, ivesia, epilobium, and goldenrod, with beds of Brianthus and the charming Cassiope, covered with sweet bells. Even the tops of the mountains are blessed with flowers. Dwarf flocks, polemonium, ribes, hosea, etc. I have seen wild bees and butterflies feeding at a height of 13,000 feet above the sea. Many, however, that go up these dangerous heights never come down again. Some, undoubtedly, perish in storms, and I have found thousands lying dead or benumbed on the surface of the glaciers, to which they had perhaps been attracted by the white glare, taking them for beds of bloom. From swarms that escape their owners in the lowlands, the honey-bee is now generally distributed throughout the whole length of the Sierra, up to an elevation of 8,000 feet above sea level. At this height, they flourish without care, though the snow every winter is deep. Even higher than this, 
several bee-trees have been cut which contained over two hundred pounds of honey. The destructive action of sheep has not been so general on the mountain pastures as on those of the great plain, but in many places it has been more complete, owing to the more friable character of the soil and its sloping position. The slant, digging, and down-raking action of hooves on the steeper slopes of moraines has uprooted and buried many of the tender plants from year to year, without allowing them time to mature their seeds. The shrubs, too, are badly bitten, especially the various species of Ceanothus. Fortunately, neither sheep nor cattle care to feed on the Manzanita, Spiraea, or Adenostoma and these fine honey-bushes are too stiff and tall, or grow in places too rough and inaccessible, to be trodden underfoot. Also the canyon walls and gorges, which form so considerable a part of the area of the range, while inaccessible to domestic sheep, are well fringed with honey-shrubs, and contain thousands of lovely bee-gardens, lying hid in narrow side-canyons, and recesses fenced with avalanche taluses, and on the top of flat projecting headlands where only bees would think to look for them. But, on the other hand, a great portion of the woody plants that escape the feet and teeth of the sheep are destroyed by the shepherds by means of running fires, which are set everywhere during the dry autumn for the purpose of burning off the old fallen trunks and underbrush with a view to improving the pastures, and making more open ways for the flocks. These destructive sheep-fires sweep through nearly the entire forest belt of the range, from one extremity to the other, consuming not only the underbrush, but the young trees and seedlings on which the permanence of the forests depends, thus setting in motion a long train of evils which will certainly reach far beyond bees and beekeepers. The plough has not yet invaded the forest region to any appreciable extent, neither has it accomplished much in the foothills. Thousands of bee ranches might be established along the margin of the plain, and up to a height of four thousand feet, wherever water could be obtained. The climate at this elevation admits of the making of permanent homes, and by moving the hives to higher pastures, as the lower pass out of bloom, the annual yield of honey would be nearly doubled. The foothill pastures, as we have seen, fail about the end of May. Those of the chaparral belt and lower forests are in full bloom in June, those of the upper and alpine region in July, August, and September. In Scotland, after the best of the lowland bloom is past, the bees are carried in carts to the highlands, and set free on the heather hills. In France, too, and in Poland, they are carried from pasture to pasture among orchards and fields in the same way, and among the rivers in barges to collect the honey of the delightful vegetation of the banks. In Egypt, they are taken far up the Nile, and floated slowly home again, gathering the honey-harvest of the various fields on the way, timing their movements in accord with the seasons. Were similar methods pursued in California, the productive season would last nearly all the year. 
End of section 16a. Read for LibriVox by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California. Spring 2007.